listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. My guest today is Frankie Boyle. Frankie, I'm really, really happy to have you on the show. I love you a bit. I think I told you in our email exchange that I saw a sensitivity in you that much belied and contradicted your public persona, even when you were sort of more vilified than me in the public sphere. I thought, there's something about that man that's incredibly sensitive and tender. So this is, I suppose, a disarming introduction is what I'm doing. I think I think it's pretty close to see who's most vilified <laughs> on the head by a head. Yeah, I know. We've both had a, our fair share, haven't we? Yeah. Of public vilification. How do you do? Do you feel like that you now that you're back on? I mean, do you sort of consider yourself to be back in the mainstream? You're on <laughs> no. television, aren't you? No, not at all. I consider myself to be like less secure than ever. Do you mean that emotionally and personally, or professionally, or both? But also professionally, you just sort of think. The minute you're kind of out and doing stuff in a very kind of mainstream field, the minute you step outside what's acceptable, you'll just be completely destroyed. <laughs> so I feel like I'm kind of dancing on the edge of a cliff a bit. You feel that, do you, when you're doing something like the autopsy, your TV autopsy, you're, yeah. are you centering yourself? Because, for example, that um, monologue you did about Theresa May on, in fact, a cliff edge and the gale, I thought one of the things I've admired about your writing is the poetry and your succinctness at conjuring images that are humorous and potent and I sort of think, oh, that'll stick, that'll bug people, that's been said about them. But now do you find, are you censoring, you're saying you're dancing on a cliff edge, do you feel, is that self-censorship? I don't do it, but, like, the edit does it for me usually. Mm. And I found out, like, writing for The Guardian as well, it just ended up being, like, a real heartache just trying to get pretty common or garden stuff in there because Mm. I think... If the education can, education system kind of pre-selects for conformity, you know that idea that, you know, by the time you reach the top in any institution, you've already gone through so many pre-selections for are you a conformist, will you fill in the test, will you turn up to school every day, mm. that everybody's a conformist. Whereas, like, sometimes in entertainment, I think they kind of pre-select for neurosis. So, like, you're, you're kind of going through several people's worries about what other people might think. Yeah. And by the time your script reaches them, they're just kind of freaking out about nothing. Yes, I think you're right about that. that there is a degree of neuroses and, indeed, sensitivity that is deeply prohibitive. But there's so much about, like, the creative process that is... It requires, like, a connection to what you actually believe. When we were corresponding for a little while on email, like I, I remember we talked briefly about the idea, like, my somewhat more romantic idea of the comedian as shaman and, like, accessing new realms of consciousness. And you said something about um, that there was something about that, about describing other worlds that you felt was somewhat dangerous and that what needed to be done was that, that for us to describe accurately the world we're actually in. Was that just the passing forward? Is that a philosophical philosophical mainstay yeah totally totally. I mean I I think there's in some of the most interesting ideas there's a lot of um, there's a lot of danger isn't there you know shamanism and um, particularly white shamans (laughs) you know (laughs) there's a lot of kind of uh, how do you mean well there's that whole thing of like cultural erasure and stuff like that and us just being at the as we see it at the top of some tree where every every idea in existence is part of our mood board for our personal philosophy. It kind of dictates against understanding stuff. So do you mean white there as a synonym for power? That sort of like a, that, that we are we are selecting, for, like that the, all culture is a mood board from which we're selecting strands and obfuscating or ignoring their cultural origins? Yeah, I almost think you don't need to use white as a synonym for power. It just I mean, is. It, it <laughs> power. It's a nim. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Ah, yeah, yeah, I see this. So, go on, there's, there's quite an interesting thing in comedy at the minute where I know some people talking about, ah, you know, you don't, you know, white privilege doesn't really exist. You know, what if you're, you know, a white guy who's born in this situation and all that kind of stuff? And you think, the thing about real oppression is those people don't need to fantasise, you know, if you're really oppressed. So that whole thing of, like, the minute, you know, you get that from, from white people, particularly white people as a platform, and they're sort of going, what if it's a paralysed white guy and he works for Oprah? You know, and you're just <laughs> going like, well, you know, if you were black, you wouldn't need to make a fantasy to have your oppression. You, you know, you would just go, well, I had it on the way in. I was oppressed <laughs> in the, the taxi, you know. And, and indeed, white, white people come up with imaginary oppressors, like the Illuminati and... You know, we've got to we've got to create something because we don't we don't have it in the same way. Is your general worldview optimistic, Frankie? What's that happened to you after like working from in media for I don't know for maybe it's fifteen years? Is it that you've been doing this kind of stuff? Like, uh, do you still feel positive and optimistic uh, about change? I think it's optimistic, but most people hearing it would think it's incredibly depressing and <laughs> pessimistic. I could lay it on you quite quickly. Uh-huh. I think like. Um, Maybe our whole reality is like a metaphor uh, and that materialism and commodification are mankind's way of trying to express in metaphor the fact that we are trapped in matter, that we are spirit that has to live in matter and die and go through all that kind of stuff. And perhaps the, um, perhaps the, the actual facts of life as we've constructed it simply a sort of metaphoric response to that now some people might think that's incredibly depressing but I sort of think of it like when I was a teacher, I did teacher training for a bit, I was an alcoholic I remember like seeing my arm writing on a chalkboard one day and thinking, oh fuck, I'm a teacher (laughs) my teachers, and I almost had an out of body experience and could see myself doing this thing, I thought I've got to I've got to get out of this job, you know, and that's when I started doing comedy and I almost think our metaphor of existence materialism is so unsurvivable that we have to get out of it that we sort of almost have to transcend matter so I think that's a very positive thing Yes, yes, I understand. So in this sort of transcendental moment there at the chalkboard you, on, at teacher training, you had epiphany, which I've heard described as the revelation of essence. Suddenly the essence becomes plain to you. That, oh, no, I'm at, that's a teacher's arm. Oh, no, it's also my arm. <laughs> they are yeah. one and the same thing. I like this idea that on some level we are conscious that we're spirit-trapped in matter and materialism is merely the metaphorical expression of this. One of the things... That that I get continually, um, what do I want to say, frustrated by, irritated by, and almost I'm on the uh, on the precipice of a hysterical toddler tantrum about, is that, in inverted commas, the left lacks a kind of mythic imagination. That in opposing austerity, there's a kind of an austerity of, uh, what do I want to say, vision. That it seems sometimes a little bit flat and a little bit droning. Mm-hmm. And like that, that what, for me, if, if we're just talking about like the uh, transactions between bureaucracies and different type of imagination, then what is the point? I want some vivid, lurid dream. I want people to talk about different realms. I want basically to take ayahuasca and, and experience machine elves <laughs> dabbling with layers of reality. But I can't drink or take drugs, so I can't. So it's, it's no longer open to me. Well, I, I agree, but there's also this thing where it's like sometimes that slightly humorless leftist 
thing also turns itself to critique all the other people's attempts to find narratives and metaphors and things that resonate with people. So it's okay to be boring, but to sit there and go, I didn't like that one. <laughs> you know, like, well, we're all just trying. I think metaphors can be incredibly powerful. It's so like in the 1968 riots in France, that was partly to do with Society the Spectacle and Guy Debord and all his slogans were chalked on the walls and stuff like that. Yes, because you do know a bit more about that because I'm into that. I dig oh, yeah. that Guy Debord pretty um, into him. Because he was saying, like, one thing I read about him the other day was saying like, that, that media and technology are so deeply corporatized that all data within it it is necessarily imbued with its agenda and you can see that in social media that even if people are sort of going hey let's meet in this square and riot <laughs> that, yeah. that an advert for trainers may very well accompany it and that it's, it's prohibited the, the medium is prohibited by its origins and by its ownership so, so his, his whole thing was like the spectacle um, as you know and it's, it's just uh, this idea that you can't escape the spectacle so every turn you know, even that's what we're doing talking about society in the spectacle on a podcast that is begined by adverts he would love this oh yes he would wouldn't he yeah He's saying that there is, it's inescapable that, that our role uh, while we're at work, we are workers. When we're at home, we're consumers. We're designated roles that prevent us from having an authentic interaction with reality, an authentic experience of ourselves. So, don't you like it's interesting for me to watch from the outside how your role, at least externally, just as a fan and a consumer of your work, like is like it seems like oh, Frankie Boyle initially is this like sort of a, a fella that's making shocking joke, working class Scottish person making sort of pretty, uh, what do I want to say, searing jokes, uh, sacred cows, taboo topics and all that. Now, there seems to be a re-emergence of political commentary, uh, sensitivity, and, and, and a real depth and, and, uh, of analysis and deep cultural understanding. Have you undergone some sort of personal epiphany, or have you always been like this and just felt emboldened more recently to express yourself more truthfully? Well, I think I've always been like like this, but it's like you'll never see little fragments of it. Yeah. So like most people, if we think about how we relate to things, I was reading an article yesterday, I started to read an article by Roger McGough. So I saw Roger McGough's on the Guardian website. I thought, I fucking hate Roger McGough. And I started to read his article and I thought to myself, wait a minute, what's your actual experience of this guy? And I think I'd seen him like reading some poems on a children's show 20 years ago. <laughs> and if I was totally honest with myself, because I sort of did it as an intellectual exercise, I didn't like his glasses and he seemed a bit smug. <laughs> and that's sort of the level that most people relate to. And to be honest, if you ask most people to relate to you more than that, you're a bit of an egotist. I mean, uh, people are perfectly... It's perfectly fine that they can hear one joke they don't like and hate you. I'm quite down with that. Right. But, you know, I've always done, like, political stand-up. It's just, like, people tend to dig it one way or another. And also, you're in shows where there's edits, and they show the bits they want oh. to show. So you don't think that you have essentially changed. You think you've been categorised and pieced together differently. There was a time where it was convenient that it was Frankie Boyle, shocking comic, and now it's convenient because everyone's a bit more bruised and anxious to have Frankie Boyle voice of uh, the authentic voice of the people. Well, maybe. I think everybody matures a bit, but there's, I mean, there's also that thing of, I think... I do tasteless stuff oh. rather than kind of like offensive stuff. So it's the idea of like what's the distinction? What would it, what would it be like without civility? Because civility is a bit of a bore, really. And I always find that better when I first meet people of getting beyond the niceties to be a bit of a kind of chore, and then you either like the person or you don't, you know. Um, and I think in society we have that as well. But part of the problem is if you're a comedian and you've got working class background, you've got a regional accent, and you're dealing with tastelessness taste is a social marker 
it's a huge, it's the main social marker in Britain. So then immediately it's like, oh, you're just doing fucking jokes and Jimmy Savile or, you know. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm not really, but that's all you can hear. And I'm sort of down with that. I don't really need people who, who can't get it to come to the shows. You know? mm. So you're saying again that that's about like forms of taxonomy. Is it because like if you make a joke about Jimmy Savile in a particular accent, that it won't be seen the same way as if that same joke was made in a different accent? We'll be oh, this is interesting cultural critique review. It's just like, oh, that's crass and vulgar. Did you ever see them documentaries Grace and Perry done about taste and class? And it was, it was actually exemplified brilliantly the point that you've just made because class is quite class and taste. I suppose whilst they're systems of categorization there's a tendency from being a bit amorphous like well he sort of said like you know it was, it was a rather you know in some ways it was reductive but it was really articulate and clear for as far as i could see like he went like in working class communities uh, wealth is exhibited so like you know you get leery tattoos gaudy loud noisy cars where materialism has to be expressed because necessarily because of scarcity middle class it gets sort of like you know it becomes more sophisticated the codes and the signals become more discreet he was talking about interior design fashion all of those things yeah. and then he's saying in the upper class people are just like dressed like old rag bags and you were able to like he was sort of like a polo match or something and everyone come in some battered old Volvo or them Morris Miners with bits of wood on them and like you know they were Proper, proper loaded, and I thought, oh, it's an interesting that because what you know that taste is the sort of the art of the everyday, the stuff that you're wearing, the way that you decorate your house. And he, and he uh, Grace Perry, he went around this like working class woman's house, and like was like, oh look at her, like, these horse brasses and this porcelain. And it was a very gaudy and elegant, beautiful sort of kitsch display yeah. of taste. And it, but it was interesting how it wasn't almost exact, like how you could. We thought, oh, this is an interesting marker. This is real. You can use it as a barometer it is legitimate it is genuine yeah i mean that's interesting i must watch that um i think as, w- as well there's a kind of further stage to it which is if you're middle class the only the only people who can really impress other people with purchasing power are really poor people and really rich people you know so if you're really poor you get a nice car and if you're really rich you get a nice yacht and your your social group are impressed but if you're middle class people are pretty much you know, in in a place where they can only express themselves through their taste. So your taste becomes incredibly important. And I think when you ally that with the fact that we're in a society where it's very difficult to live morally. So if if my taxes are going to bomb Syria tomorrow, if my taxes are going to, like if you saw the front page of the Times today, an SAF death squad, you know, uh, how do I live a moral life or maybe it's through my taste you may want to pay lower taxes but how on earth are we to fund our SAS death squads <laughs> is that what you want a, a nation bereft of SAS death squads no you're right good idea fair enough mm, you're quite right now but I wonder how that relates to what you were saying about uh, materialism and, and endless commodification and the fact that you know like you're right we sit here and we make this po- podcast now you know, autodidacts though we may be we're evidently adept at pontificating and doing it you know in some cases on some occasions though not this one for a handsome living you know but like where, where is it that where are you resourcing your sense of uh, purpose now what is it that you want what is it that you want to do as a comic because like one of the things is I still believe in I do believe in the possibility of change I believe in uh, evangelism I believe that you can enthuse people probably in ways that are rather dangerous in fact when I was just interviewing Naomi Klein there she went you're the part of the bloody problem you you messianic lunatic <laughs> well I sort of think I was struck by this thing I read in a Grant Morrison comic years ago 
uh, one good man can make a difference was it just the end of the story arc he had so I, I don't think I'm trying to evangelise to people in general, it's just that thing of if you do something interesting that has meaning to it, it can be that one person, so I, I grew up watching things like Alex Cox's uh, Videodrome or Movie Drome or whatever he called it where he would just show his favourite movies on BBC Two, which you wouldn't even get that kind of thing now but like, just just things like that had a big impact on how I see the world you know, and if you can change how one person sees the world, that might be enough. I suppose so. I mean, if we don't really understand the true nature of beingness or, or of the manifest world, and I suppose to sort of to even to suggest that there is a global narrative that we can interact with and intersect with, rather than sort of endless, infinite subjectivities all tangled up and occasional narrative threads mimetically leaping across the internet. But I, I don't know. I suppose like when you find you know when there's you getting interviewed by Owen Jones, a person who has a much clearer I, like I, I like Owen and like a sort of a clicker a clearer idea of narrative, a sort of a traditional idea in some respects of the left. How do you think, like, you know, someone like you that's talking, like, talking about the spectacle, talking about the nature of consciousness, talking about that sort of, like, you know, in a, sometimes you sound a little bit nihilistic, if I may say so. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> I think nihilism is quite a positive thing. Is it? Me? Yeah. Go on. Like, so nihilism starts off as, like, existential nihilism of going, well, you know, there's, there's nothing else. You might as well make this as as good as you can, you know, so it's a kind of it's a, a branch of existentialism. Originally, I think it's only l- since the 90s or whatever that people have started to see it as a kind of death cult. Mm, because it becomes a bit decadent and hedonistic. Oh, well, there's no purpose. Might as well stick this up my bum and kick that vase over. Yeah. I, mean, I think as well, you have to be careful about saying, let's have a narrative and let's have a, a thing where we... There's, there's a thing where like, uh, Alan Moore, the comic book writer, talks about um, art is propaganda for a state of mind. It was really Ooh, interesting. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's cool. But at the same time, you've got to be careful with that because who do you propagandise to? You don't propagandise to your equals. It's not persuasion. It places uh, you in a hierarchy of, well, we're going to design a narrative that, you know, poor people are going to fit into and this is going to make the world better. And the thing with that is people can see it. If you don't, if you don't approach it from a position of equality and going, well, how can I help? Then... You know, you're you're suddenly putting yourself in a hierarchical position of how do I create this story that's going to work, which is what most political parties are doing and what most mm. like really politically motivated commentators are doing. And I always sort of think people see that. People see that you're trying to politicise things. I see. I'm a bit grandiose, of course. So, like, I'm always sort of thinking, oh, I've got some... Like, but, like, I don't know, Frankie. It feels like it's an essential part of me. I say sometimes to my counsellor, like, uh, I know much of what I do is driven by ego. I know it is. But it's not only that. There's something else. There is. I admit that there's the ego. I admit it. There's the grandiosity. I admit I want the adulation. And, and in the past, I wanted this more audio, uh, obvious anatomical manifestations, carnal manifestations. But like all of, of all of these, I have now been stripped, stripped, and landed in domesticity. And I don't think I've ever been happier than being a father and a, a partner in a you know a recognisable sort of way. Uh, but still, this yearning that seems to me to be not perhaps these systems of categorization and these delineations are also arbitrary but seems to be more than ego super ego ego plus something of the mystic something of the magical something that i'm still craving i think you find this reductive or nihilistic but it's not i think it's a good thing you know like david ike 
Of course I do. Right, so like David Icke <laughs> thinks... will be here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, he thinks like so a lot of people are lizards, a lot of various people in power and sort of country and western singers for some reason are lizards, right? But I sort of see like David Icke's kind of like a religious figure. So he's like a guy who's had a religious experience, but he's a goalkeeper, right? <laughs> so he, he, he frames it in a particular way. And it's kind of like the guy who wrote the Bible has to believe the metaphor is real. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's why it has its power. David Icke has to believe, like, they're not reptiles, but it's a good way of thinking of them because they behave like reptiles. That's right. And he does have to, as you say, because, uh, like, you've met David Icke, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. We, we, I've met him several times, and I, you know, I'm obviously fascinated by David Icke. There's that, like, I, so much of what he says. I mean, he preempted a whole lot of stuff, didn't he? Like, loads of things he said were going to happen. Let's not, not, let's not mince words. Pedophile rings, you know. Like yeah. David Icke said, there's all within the entertainment industry. There's this great pedophile ring. It runs deep. People in children's homes. Right now, you know, admittedly, that was bookended with a lot of lovely stuff about lizards. But like, I, I agree with what you're saying. Is that that it's almost like unconscious metaphor. Like because because David Icke, if pushed, will go, no, there is it. But see, I think that maybe the messianic thing is that. So you have right. to understand it as a kind of, oh, I can totally change the world by doing this. But to have your actual effect on whatever it is, a few thousand people that you energise, mm. like... You That's have to enough. believe that to be true. Like, uh, like, it, like, yeah, so if Hitler suddenly had the sort of a moment of going, oh, no, this is mental. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not Hitler. <laughs> Maybe Hitler meant to be metaphorical. He just got, he's like, no, can you see? <laughs> yeah, this metaphor you've done, the death camps will start. Uh, they're a bridge too far. Death camps. <laughs> yeah, like we're all dying, like necropolitics. Who's it okay to kill and not to kill? Oh, we, we've built one. Oh, no, no. Like perhaps he had a Frankie Boyle moment of looking at his own sea hiling hand and like you writing on a chalkboard and going, oh, no, I am Hitler. Shit. Get that hand out. What have I done to myself? You have to believe them. You know, you have to take the metaphor out of it. It has to be absolute and real. Yeah, when I when, when I sort of spoke to David Icke, I um, I've loved so many of the stories, and I love like some of them are well vivid. Have you read some of the ones where it's like Hillary Clinton going down on someone and all this? Because you think, whoa, man, you're going for this stuff. Have you read like the Queen Mother turns into a giant kind of white albino lizard, oh. like, particularly vicious, and she, there's one <laughs> that where she like changes into this big white lizard and stabs a kid up the arse. Oh, and it's mean. like just the start of a chapter. Like, where'd you go from there? <laughs> where are you going to go from here? <laughs> never explain, never complain, isn't it? Well, she had that some catchphrase, the Queen Mum, never apologise, never explain or something like that. Yeah. Well, surely you should after you've turned into a <laughs> bloody great giant albino lizard and bummed someone, particularly if it's an underage person who couldn't possibly have consented. Mum. Yeah, like he had some rich, some rich, rich stuff in there, some interesting things. What did coming in? What else did you, what did you think when you met him? Right. Um, I was like in Portsmouth and he just seemed like a pretty normal dude but there was this like mad fan had kind of got backstage and uh, was like talking to me and like David Icke was stuck behind him in the corridor looking at me like this bloke's a nutter <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's get away from this weirdo right now then the queen mum bummed another kid <laughs> right that's it she was a phoenix that time like um yeah I, what I find fascinating is as like you know, as I say this like I wouldn't like to be mean about David Icke it's just it's so colourful some of this imagery that like when I met him I was just surprised by actually quite 
how how sort of ordinary he was and almost humdrum. In result, we watched football with him, and we went to Isle of Wight, right? And like I think it was like an FA Cup game, so it was sort of like a couple of Championship level teams. And him and his lad were just like, yeah, no, no, they need to be playing a bit wider. And so <laughs> it's really weird. It's like him just sort of sat there drinking tea and being sort of very ordinary, while sat on this, uh, you know, this sort of great volcano of uh, lucid imagery and powerful mythology. I think like the mundane is hugely underrated because like they've got stuff to sell us all the time. Um, but you know, imagine how much better Harry Potter would be at a comprehensive. You know, if it was just about a kid and his teacher having to get a bus out to the edge of town to fight some demons or something, and it just all been a real chore, and them having to top up their oyster card, <laughs> like much better. You think that in the ordinary, in the real, there could be somehow more potency. There's really good. Um, you read those children's books, um, Alan Garner, Weird Stone of Brisingamen, and no, mate. Right, there's a trilogy. Right, so first one's called Weird Stone of Brisingamen, and they're all about these um, children, a brother and sister, who are fighting against this witch, um, and you know they go through like old myths kind of cycles, so like Cuchulain and characters like that are in it. Uh, and then he writes a third one, like about thirty years later, just before he dies, and it's like the boy grown up going to his therapist, and he's not able to really remember any of it, and they just think he was like nuts as a kid, and his, his sister disappears at the end of the second book, fighting this witch, and he just never really finds out whether she did or whether she didn't, or if he's just lost his mind. It sort of normalises it. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. Oh, I'm going to check those out. I like that, Frankie. All right, so let me think about it because I span out a little bit while we were talking about Ike and uh, became a bit untethered <laughs> <laughs> from myself. From so, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, like on sort of a perhaps a more or ordinary level, these moments of disruption that we seem to be experiencing, like the sort of a, the, the terrorism, the Grenfell Tower, um, the, which we spoke to Owen Jones about. Like, uh, what do you what do you think is r- revealed? by these events what do you think is becoming apparent what is becoming manifest that's been previously concealed I think people are are more widely recognising just how little this system that is supposed to nominally care for them can't even be bothered to pretend and for some reason there seems to be a difference between a government that's supposed to pretend to care and a government that can't even be bothered to pretend to care you know so the idea that the Grenfell residents got their rent deducted this month, for example. You know, the idea they got they tried to throw them out of their hotel, you know, in the holiday in summer and they tried to split them all up and 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 also there's a kind of media lag there, isn't there? So they don't know that they can't get away with that anymore in the days of social media. They don't know that they can't have a council meeting that isn't filmed at all because everybody's got a camera now. You know. So there's a there's a there's two things there I think which is like Social media, for which a long, for a long time, has seemed to be like quite a kind of depressing seesaw of good and bad. Mm. Now it seems to be like a net gain in protest movements, um, and and just also the fact that we, uh, our, our ruling classes or elites are, are way more out of touch than we'd imagine. Yes, I see. So this, in a way, is become like is a, a, a revelatory symbol of ju- that that brings together numerous threads disconnection, total lack of concern and an unawareness, in fact, of how quickly things can change. I thought one of the things that was notable uh, and it struck me was that on the like sort of Monday or whenever uh, after the fire, Jeremy Corbyn was on TV going, you know, 
repossess houses, give them luxury flats. And that would have been, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have been mental and risible. And then by Thursday, Friday, that's what's happening. So there is almost there is a there is a necessity to respond to a different kind of uh, discourse. It's also just like how it's almost novelistic. I mean, it's how kind of cartoonish the whole thing has been. So like the head of housing at um, Kensington and Chelsea. Uh, council is a guy called Rock Fielding Mellon, who's kind of <laughs> stood down. But he's like part of this like aristocratic family who his mother is some kind of mad old hippie who ran a couple of times uh, for this party called Tree Panning for the National Health, trying to persuade everyone to like tree pan themselves to drill a hole. Oh, in yeah, it. they drilled a hole yeah. in your head to, <laughs> yeah. to help you relax. Yeah, so she's got two sons. One is Rock Fielding Mellon, the kind of straight arrow, and then there's Cosmo <laughs> Fielding Mellon. Cosmo, Cosmo Fielding Mellon's done several documentaries about acid. <laughs> oh, my God. And they live in this, like, Jacobean mansion, right? And it has the Britain, or maybe the world's largest gravity fountain. So it has literally this enormous 300-foot-high powerful jet of water shooting up like 24 hours a day the one thing that could have extinguished the kind of fire <laughs> is in the grounds of his ancestral home if only there was some way some way that we could have <laughs> controlled the conflagration one a man would have needed something absurd like a gravity defying press conference over <laughs> so the, the, the solution was laying about in their garden and the, the straight arrow is the one that's called rock melon rock, rock fielding melon amazing mm. Amazing. So yes, it's, it's interesting when you talked before about like perhaps materialism and commodification being some extraordinary metaphor for ourselves understanding that we are spirit trapped in matter because more and more I'm seeing a kind of dumb poetry in current affairs, like sort of where emblems such as the tower itself and then sort of ludicrous sub-narratives about fountains in the garden as if somehow now a myth is appearing just beneath the veneer of superficial reality yeah. like that something alternative is trying to realise itself. Some dreadful beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. Like, there, is there some optimism in this? Like, in, in events like this, on a sort of, I don't know, Frankie, this deep into the conversation, but on a practical level, do you think that, that this could precipitate change? Absolutely, and there's loads of things to be positive about. Look at the incompetence of your enemies. Look yes. at, like, the Tory cabinet, like Michael Fallon, a kind of living sigh <laughs> sent out to just sort of soak up shrapnel or something he's just you know tied onto a bus and driven at the media Michael Gove um, Boris is like they're I mean they're just they're just sitting there, how do we can we replace this incompetent cunt with a, <laughs> with a massive cunt no we can't mm. Yes, it is. I can see that there's cause for optimism there. What about you on a personal level? How is it being you? Are you all right? Are you happy in there? You've got love in your life and like yeah. you've got like children and stuff, hey? Yeah, I've got children. Um, but I've been down in London doing this um, TV show on BBC Two. So I'm just like, um, I'm quite missing my kids at the moment and feeling a bit like, how much longer can I do this? How long have you had to do it so far? <laughs> I've been here for like months. Oh, really? Yeah. What does it, it makes you feel what a little bit disconnected? Yeah, and it also just makes I think it makes your writing a bit kind of automatic because instead of like, you know, oh, I really want to say something about this subject, you're kind of going, I need ten jokes for this week to try and get through this thing and get back home. Hmm. 
Yes, I see. So it breaks your relationship, if I can be grand for a moment, with the idea of the muse. My life has changed a lot, you know, like sort of I felt like when before I was just a philandering, womanizing, like sort of professional loose cannon person, there was sort of no consequence. There was a kind of delicious rootlessness accompanied though it was with a deep sense of personal despair at the end of the evening when whatever hotel I was in would immediately turn into sort of a barren multi-story car park bereft of all life bereft of all light you know just the trail of underwear traipsing out of the door now like you know this era is over and I sort of live in I mean like have peace and harmony and love and all these things that I sort of never like you know for me family Family was a kind of a, an idea that I was nervous about because of like what the connotations that word had because of the one that I'd grown up with, you know. And yeah, now sure. I'm learning a kind of a new way of living. And one, how, do you, how do you feel to it in in that? Does that take you away from that? Or? I don't like um, when I if I go like I'm doing like touring in an intelligent way, right? I do like sort of three shows a week. And like, if I have to stay away, my girlfriend and my baby and my dog, all of us go up in a car like travelling people. Right. I might as well have a banjo. Like we're sort of like, it's a really good way of doing it because it, the centre, the nucleus of my life has moved from this kind of limitless, sort of like sort of driven kind of performance ego goal. Although, as I've said to you already, that in itself has been interwoven with other stuff to, oh, no, I have a home. I'm a person. I'm a... It's great if you can do that man because I've just had to stop touring because like I did a 50 date tour or something last time I just couldn't handle it it's too much and you were away a lot and what happened to you I was just away too much and there's also like you know the thing you get at the moment there's a lot of criticism of comedians about oh you, you want comedy to be a protected space and a special place where you can say anything and you sort of think it's the furthest space away from that in the world. I mean, if I could just stop them fucking yelling or try to climb on the stage <laughs> or, like, expose themselves or whatever, you know? Then, you know, the, that idea that we have this aspirational idea of it's a protected space, you know, just because you need to think that when you're writing. But in, in practice, you know, standing up on a Friday night in Blackburn people have been drinking I mean they start drinking at like fucking five o'clock <laughs> <laughs> oh you and your protected space <laughs> <laughs> yes I see and that is, aside from that you find it personally difficult do you um, yeah I just find it really hard being away from home for that amount of time and also I, I mean I like the creativity of doing stand up so you write a joke you go and try it out it works it's in the show but the idea of then taking that show around like a hundred towns, mm. I mean, as it gets less relevant to you and them, I can't, I'm never doing it again, I don't think. Oh, wow, really? No. You don't think you'll do it again? No. My technique, I think, is all right, this three days a week thing. I'll see how it, I'll see how it goes. Now, I read both of your biographical books. Well, that thing your brother said, like... Uh, you're always going to be worried about something, even when you've like, you'll always be worried about something. You worry about something, and even if that thing goes okay, there'll be a new worry. So basically, you're always <laughs> going to be worried about something. Yeah, I don't like that thought very much, and I've had it myself. Yeah, a hierarchy of like worries that we have, and like all we ever really do is replace the one at the top. Yes, yes. There's a jostling league table of angst. Do you have some kind of like? 
have you do you think that that sort of dynamic of your early life which seems sort of pretty fraught to me so mm-hmm. it sounded like it's quite difficult and obviously you're an alcoholic for a while yeah. what is it that uh, and in, you know in this sort of pop- populist understanding of the condition w- will re- remain one like you don't drink no more or take drugs of any kind no i don't do anything no. yeah me neither and like so like what do you like how do you uh, find solace if you've got some sort of spiritual program or something uh, no, I have to kind of cross addict into work. Cross addict into work, you get <laughs> obsessive about your work. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I find I don't really get obsessive about it, but I just do too much, or I do more than makes me happy. Mm. And it's just that part of that kind of Catholic guilt thing of, oh, that's good, I'm unhappy now, I'm doing so much, I'm unhappy, that's, that's what it, how it's supposed to be. You know yes, I, mean? I do know what you mean by that. I do know what you mean by that. Have you got like a vision for w- what you want to do? Do you, do you see yourself becoming more involved in, like more directly involved in activism? Do you see yourself ever wanting to be in a position of any authority or power? Does that idea sort of su- seem deeply unpleasant to you? Oh, no, it seems incredibly unpleasant. Uh, You've read that thing, um, The Once and Future King, T.H. White? No. It's brilliant. It's like this kid's book about King Arthur. But it's like it's aimed at sort of twelve year olds or something. It's where they took um, the sword and the stone cartoon from, and kind of where they took Monty Python, the Holy Grail, takes bits from it as well. But it's Ooh. all like this very jolly kind of kids book about uh, you know young Arthur meets Merlin and the the you know the spoons and forks dance on the table and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then a few chapters in, it starts to get a bit darker, and Merlin turns him into a fish. Go and see what life's like as a fish, and he swims around in the moat, and he meets this pike, and the pike does this speech about power and he goes like uh, love is just an evolutionary trick and uh, pleasure's the same all there is is power and he, he does this wee speech about it. and as I can remember reading that at like 12 or something going, <laughs> 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 you know? but it's just that it's, I mean that's the assessment that's going on in people that want power of well this is all there is control do you believe that still? That uh, that that pike saying that there's only oh, pleasure no, I and love. I don't believe it. You I mean, were I, romantic. I reject it. I reject it completely. Yeah. You believe in love. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, me it's hard, too. It's hard to have kids and not believe in love. Right. I remember trying to explain to my son one day, and he was whatever he was pissed off about, and, um, and he was like, "Oh, you know, you don't even like me, do you?" Or something like that. As so we we're going to bed, and I was like, "You couldn't step in front of a bullet for you," and he was like. Why? <laughs> it was just like, I suppose you're a very little kid. He's maybe three or four at the time. And you try and explain that or unpack that to him. It's very difficult. Really? You didn't have an intuitive understanding of that? You think of, that... of overwhelming love? I don't think they do. I mean, I think kids are quite. Um, it depends who you're brought up, I suppose. But Selfish little bastards, aren't they? Like this one I've got. It's only seven months old. It's just an undiluted will. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, I mean, and they have that. They're really centred on themselves for the first few years, aren't they? And they're like, oh, right, Dad's like that. I think it would kill me for amusement. I don't think it would, yeah, like it's just, I mean, she's glorious and so beautiful and caused me to plumb new fathoms of love within myself. But in return, I have received little but grabbed chest hair and headbutts. I think the best thing in my life is that what amuses my son the most is some misfortune befalling me. Imagining me frustrated and, and stuck in some place is like what, what he finds funniest. So anytime anything bad happens, I think, wait till I tell him this. I mean, he's going to kill himself. Oh, he loves it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he loves nothing more. 
than to yeah. hear you being trounced. One of them things that Yanis Varoufakis said when he came in here, that bloody Yanis Varoufakis, he came in here telling us about the dynamics of power in Europe. He goes, um, look, those people, they've got no power. They've, they've only got power within their systemic role. Like even somebody said, like Wolfgang Schauber, the German Chancellor, he said out loud to that Yanis Varoufakis, democracy's all right as long as it don't change anything. And he was neither being ironic nor dismissive or anything. He just was stating some data. <laughs> democracy's all right as long as it doesn't change anything. And that, that he within, like, that he, that it was sort of, like Yanis Varoufakis said from his flirtation with actual power structures that people in it were just inhabiting particular roles. And these, these they knew that. Yeah, I think we make the mistake sometimes of going on from that. Obviously, he knows a lot more than me about it. Uh, but I think I sometimes think we make the mistake of going, ah, oh, so the real power is somewhere else. The real power is the Rothschilds or whatever. And the real power is the system. You know, the real power and the systemic power is within the institutions. You know? Yeah, well, so you mean it's not a human power, it's sort of superhuman or unhuman. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's like corporations, you know, that idea of, oh, we're going to make corporations liable for things. You can't. There's sort of blueprints for making money. You need to look at ways of reducing their power, you know. Yeah, that is actually like one of the things that comes up from talking to people, like you know these, but you know the Curtis and Yanis Varoufakis, and now yourself, is that as long as there's there are as long as there are hubs of power, centralized power, it's always going to behave according to the motif of that pike. It's always going to perpetuate and sustain itself. So the only way of changing it is to dismantle it even like sort of, uh, do you think that like on a personal level uh, do you, are you willing to make big sacrifice do you think that, and and do you think that people genuinely generally are I, I mean I don't think I need to I think <laughs> I think it's like there's this kind of there's a kind of, there's a kind of ego to that you know I like that whole thing of like I saw a documentary once about like aboriginal uh, guys who uh, paint on rocks and they see something that's really old, might be a thousand years old, and they go, "Oh, just redo the eye," you know. And this researcher was saying to one of them, "Well, what are you doing that for?" You know, that's a, an antique essentially. And the guy's like, "No, we're all just part of the same guiding hand that does this." And I think if you think of yourself as, "Oh, I'm doing the eye," it's much healthier for you than going, "I'm going to create this thing that lasts for." 2,000 years, do you know what I mean? Well, it's a very wise old body. Uh, you're a very wise soul there, sat there, Frankie. What was that thing I was thinking about the other day you might like? Here it is. I was thinking about them Buddhist mandalas, like, you know, the people take ages and ages to manufacture them, right? Like, you know, yeah. sort of sit there ages, don't they, with the sand, and it's a ball lake. It takes a week, and then they just sweep it up. And, like, obviously, like, me as a person that likes permanence, and, like, oh, no, no, don't, that was brilliant, fuck! But, of course, the whole point of it is to induce that feeling because you're going to lose your own body, yourself, everything's going to fall apart, sent cannot hold, to quote that poem yet again. Like, that, that, even a thing like uh, Michelangelo's David, it's just a temporary thing, the moment will come with, you know, sort of whatever death cult looms up out of Christianity if, uh, if, the, if the right demographic becomes poor enough, if they rise up against idolatry, chisel in hand and decide to smash away the Renaissance in an ISIS-inspired frenzy. Like, you know, that Michelangelo's David is on its way to destruction and deterioration as all of our individual bodies are on their way to destruction and deterioration. And this sort of sense of oneness, this idea that this aborigin, uh, aborigine exhibited, you know, I better just do the eye, that's no, no, revere the deer on the rock. Like that, that is a better type of connection. But that, you know, but that idea of a sort of an, an indigenous connection beyond our individual understanding of time and space, it's bloody hard to get that out there, isn't it, mate? I mean, that's not how people are really <laughs> looking at the world. Yeah, I mean, it is incredibly hard. I think there's also that thing where, like, I was quite interested in this idea for a while. Culture 
is like a resistance to civilization. Have you ever heard that kind no. of idea? So it's like, this isn't my idea, but it's like the idea is that, that what we call culture now is kind of comes up in the time of like Frederick the Great in Germany and it's sort of or what became Germany. And it's kind of to resist the French idea of civilising through institutions. So, you know, France has all these different, you know, academies of the arts and so on, and then partly that was a kind of soft power way of making everything very French, you know, and culture kind of rises up to, to resist that. And I kind of think we're in a kind of late stage of that now where part of our problem is we work within institutions trying to produce culture. So the reason it's difficult to do a stand-up show on the BBC is that the comedy clubs part of the reason comedy clubs exist is to resist things like the BBC, is to go, oh, have you seen that fucking show? You know, that's part of the, that's, that's part of the, the reason for them, you know? So, so where do you go from there? I mean, do you democratise institutions or do you try and radicalise institutions in some way or make them more representative or something? But it seems like, you know, we, we're all stuck in, in some sense within institutions that are kind of frustrating us. Yes, I suppose so. It ref- to refer back to that idea that uh, the se- we have ourselves become institutionalised. Who is thinking our thoughts? Who is prescribing these stories? What is it that I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of myself? One of the things in our uh, email correspondence that you talked about was, I-, I can't remember the correct words, but you talked about the idea of language being a sort of an infective agent, a virus mm. in the mind. Talk me through that again. I like right. that. This actually is my idea. Oh. So the idea is like, um, uh, you know, like uh, toxoplasmosis is a, a disease that cats or cat shit gives to mice and it creates tiny little scars in, in mice brains uh, that never heal and it, it makes the mice behave in an uninhibited way. So uh, when they're uninhibited, they're more likely to be caught by the cat. So, like, toxoplasmosis has a parasite, a brain parasite, performs a function of uh, changing behaviour in mice. What if language is that for humanity? So what if language has been seeded here to make us behave maybe just behave louder so that we can be found and consumed by some <laughs> cosmic entity. Or maybe it's simply something that's watching. It makes us more amusing, the fact that we're able to relate through language. It's a really beautiful and extraordinary idea. I like the point of origin that cats shit cavalier <laughs> mice. Like they've got something in their shit that makes mice a bit cocksure and buccaneer in their attitudes. Yeah, they live fast, die young mice population. And you think that language could... It's, it's really sort of a quite a beautifully complex idea. It's an occupying force because what is it manifesting? All is metaphor. All is symbol. What is being expressed? I mean, I suppose it, it denies the supposition that language is a reference to some deeper essential self. It in its, 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 it is its own vessel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't know if we get into trouble with Chomsky and linguistics anywhere along the I way. Don't, I don't think Chomsky would be on our side on this. I think Terence McKenna would be off for it. Yeah, Terence McKenna and those great pioneers of DMT and ayahuasca, they'd be well up for it. But Chomsky, I mean, he's a, he's, he seems quite dour at the best of times, doesn't he? Like, uh, yeah. well, well, Russell and Frankie, I don't think that that's plausible at all. Because, <laughs> you know, like, if, oh, he sucked, if he sucked the life out of that gag. <laughs> Dear old gnome. Oh, no, what's another thing there? Like, uh, this is interesting. I think you might bring me to the precipice of my awareness. So think, like, because I never lose the tendrils and threads that I require. Oh, yeah, ayahuasca and uh, DMT. 
don't it bother you as a person in sobriety and recovery, uh, wherever it is you determine your abstinent lifestyle as, that you can't take ayahuasca? Because like you referenced Terence McKenna there, that uh, cosmonaut of the brain. Like don't like I listen to those. I watch YouTube things, borderline fetishistically, of people talking about you know like the describing their journeys on DMT and DMT even more than ayahuasca because you smoke it and it's such a obvious like crack as a hallucinogen that I think oh god I can't get away with that I can't sell myself on no I'm only doing this for spiritual reasons of research if I find myself with a pipe in my hand that's not a good look you know so like but are you not fascinated by having some of these metaphors made literal I'm fascinated have you ever read the Breaking Open the Head Daniel Pinchbeck yeah I like Daniel Pinchbeck I know him do you know what his um, second book was called go on I am Quetzalcoatl. <laughs> <laughs> so he did all this. For people who don't know, he did all this stuff like we experimented with drugs. And it's a really good book. He talks about, you know, what it's like to take all the various kind of hallucinogens. But, like, by the second one, he thought he was the Mexican god Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, Quetzalcoatl, some feathered serpent, mm. some interdimensional traveller. <laughs> I've discovered... It's good job I took all these drugs, actually, because I've discovered I'm Quetzalcoatl, this uh, serpent thing. You don't think that was the drugs? It wasn't Quetzalcoatl, took the drugs. I'm Quetzalcoatl. Yep, it was the drugs. I turned myself into Quetzalcoatl using drugs. Um, but, like, uh, uh, what, uh, this for me, there's something beautiful about this mystery in that it, people have archetypal experiences. What I find exciting when I watch that Terence McKenna stuff is, hold on a minute, people are dropping this acid and they're like pl- plunging inward into inner myths, yeah. inner truths, and this synthesis, is that the word? Where, like, different senses represent themselves in sort of different media. Like, you're able to see visually the, tr- the zeitgeist trends for me that's a sort of a <clears throat> that image matrix suggests to me that my own consciousness is such a tiny aperture of a total consciousness it makes me start remembering my own experiences in acid and it makes me want to do it more <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's something to be said for that and maybe as we get older we won't care yeah because like as the material form disintegrates you're something else. Might as well just like dive within, let it fall apart. I knew this girl who was on acid every day for a year as a waitress, <laughs> and uh, she was obviously like having a bad time. And eventually, she said to the the people running the restaurant, "Look, I've been on like a heavy dose of acid every day." And they were like, I'm, "You know, I'm going to leave. I'm going to yeah. go get therapy, or whatever." And they're like, "Don't leave. You're like the best waitress." <laughs> <laughs> Come on, just a cup of coffee. You're brilliant. Tell us more about that winged serpent thing that you are. <laughs> yeah, like something didn't affect her job. I used to think that as well because like acid like the first time I sort of heard of it was like people at school were doing it like and how can you do school on this like because I didn't take it till a couple of years later I was like 18 the first time I took it and thought like you can't do this and school like I, everything just completely shut down my whole reality shut down of like because my sense of self I remember that like in my 18 year old understanding of what reality was realising oh no there is no such thing as self this is just a composite of biography and biochemical data and I probably wouldn't have known words like biochemical data but I remember feeling that I remember looking at my own anatomy a la you and Hitler not that I'm saying all the same thing like and, and thinking these hands what is this occupant force what is this energy that's not my thinking but is, is, is my consciousness and my anatomical awareness but there seems to me that there is some truth in that some truth in being able to 
uh, transcend my conventional ideas of self and like that sometimes material life with its prescriptions not that I don't feel wonderful moments of transcendent love such as with my little kid and even bloody hell mate I just went on a barge holiday for 24 hours and I thought god life can be so different I'm a man on a barge obviously I couldn't work the barge properly so I had to keep getting out and wading through shallow waters which you're not meant to do but it seemed like such a, a renunciation of ordinariness for me to be this bloke on a boat with a family as much as it was to be a dad in a loft putting a crib up there when a the baby got too big for it I'm a dad in a loft I'm a dad in a loft I'm a man on a barge there was a bloody Indian that I go to normally around the corner I called up and got Indian from the place I always get it life hadn't changed that much I weren't, it weren't dances with bloody wolves but it just made me realise this te- life I'm living this is not it this is a selection this is a confection I am the curator of this reality I'm not like uh, Prometheus and trapped in a cyclical moment I can at any moment abandon all this I remember once with a girlfriend going like she goes, no, yeah, I don't like the way you do that. Because, well, listen, let me know. Because I can let go of any of this shit for you. None of this is real. I just flung this together on the off <laughs> to get myself out of where I was to where I wanted to go. Let me know what you don't like, and it's gone. Like I sort of den- <laughs> absolutely den- denounced the essential self. It's great, man. You know that Bill Hicks thing about. Um uh, we're all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Yeah. I keep wanting to say it, and then, but every time I go to say it on the stage while performing comedy, I think, don't say that, Russell. That's Bill Hicks. <laughs> don't actually just say that now, because that is one of your favourite Bill Hicks bits. But it's like, because it's so true, I keep arriving at it while, do, like, while riffing. It hangs above my uh, toilet in my, my bedroom. Got yeah. Bill, a picture of Bill Hicks with that quote that's, oh. that my publisher gave me. But it's what he would have wanted. It's what he would have wanted. Yeah. Have you ever, ever told you that thing about the guy who told me asked Bill Hicks for his advice about comedy? No, go on. So it's like a comic, do you know Tom Rhodes? No. He's like an American guy who I met bizarrely on 9 11 uh, and our gig got cancelled. We're in Dublin. But uh, Tom. Uh, it's the wrong attitude. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> People need to laugh now more than ever. Well, we were there. <laughs> um, and uh, he said uh, he met Bill Hicks when he was like playing like the Texas circuit or wherever he was at the time when he was like a really young guy. And he, he pestered Bill Hicks for his advice over a couple of nights. And Bill Hicks eventually said, Look, if you want to know the secret, it's always be nice to the new guy. And for a few years, I thought, Oh, he's having a joke at Tom. You know, he's going, You're the new guy, pester me, and I'm being nice. By, fobbing you off with this but now I kind of think in the spirit of being the aborigine working on the eye that it is kind of about that it is realising that you're not the be all and end all that there's the next generation along from that and the next generation along from that and you're just you're just filling in a little you know bit of stuff on the stone it's a powerfully transcendent idea you just sew together the aboriginal eye with a beautiful Bill Hicks story and you've punctured just for a moment my narcissism but hold on I'll get it back wait <laughs> a minute there must be some reason why I'm important the eyebrows MTV Awards was married that time come on you can do it but um, have you ever listened to John, John Lennon talk about acid no come so on so John Lennon takes like like thousands of trips and says like he eventually there's a recording of him talking about it he says like he eventually just realises he's dissolved his whole ego <laughs> and he doesn't experience life as a kind of narcissist anymore and he can't write and some friend comes to visit him, I guess someone from England, and says, look, remember that time that you wrote that song? You were being a dick then. <laughs> you know, and he tells him, like, all this, all the different stuff that his ego has helped him to do. And Lennon sort of eventually arrives at the point before he has his comeback of going, yeah, I do need some ego to get stuff done. You can't just... Well, in the old Bhagavad Gita, they're pretty clear about 
this is you are here you are in the material world god's got nothing against material we do not denounce material we do not favor absolute asceticism and total denouncement of this essential experience i mean there's a voluptuousness in hinduism that i rather enjoy yeah, above yeah. the austerity of some uh, other faiths that i know equally little about and like sort of um, what i like about that is that the 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 ego is an artifact that is not just this sort of um, product of uh, commodification commodification and capitalism but it can be this glorious expression in that Bill Hicks way of the yeah. consciousness experience you know, limitless consciousness experience in itself excuse me subjectively that it in a kind of an, an like an, an aesthetic idea like a wild like you know owner wear a work of art or be a work of art that we can become like you know that it needn't be Excuse me. Fucking hell. Uh, <laughs> wrong I think I'm going to actually vomit. It's like I've drunk ayahuasca. Like uh, somehow, just sort of by virtue of talking about it. Like that we can become the realisation of this beauty, this facet of the limitless, that the whole can be experienced in the individual. That's the problem. And Curtis said this thing, right? he goes, the genie's out of the bottle on individualism. You're not going to be able to tell people, you're part of the parish. Come on, let's get together and be a collective. Let's put on a boiler suit. Sure. That's, that shit's sure. over. You know, people are going to want to be individuals. But that's why I'm... I, ever find myself banging on about the importance of religion because I think it's the only way to transcend the prohibitions and limitations of materialism that you've got to somehow engage the mythic imagination of people but you're right that it is a sort of a form of propagandizing people and it does require that you yourself believe in the metaphor and that's I guess why I'm interested in hallucinogens and psychedelics because it's a way of make the dream real I heard this thing Frankie about like um, like I think it's apocryphal but it's a nice little thing that goes that when the settlers came, the settlers, they shamed the hunter-gatherer societies and most notably the shaman. The shaman, they said, your rituals are bullshit and meaningless, your dances, your spells and your silliness that are out on the edge of the village. And the shaman became clown, lost his ability to be mythic and potent. The shaman becomes the clown, earthed and profane, nothing but his jokes to guard him against his nudity as the settlers drag him down you know and this is what we become now the shaman I've, I've often thought at the center of every joke scandal you can see why shamans live on the edge of town you yeah. know you've got to make a quick getaway sometimes they didn't like that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not going well. <laughs> Stick the old masks and the acid in my backpack and off I go. Hello, Wickham. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> the people, you know, they've got feelings. <laughs> yeah, so, like, what do you feel when you're in the midst of uh, some brouhaha? Uh, one of the things I most enjoyed about you is watching online how you beautifully articulated the scandal around the joke you made uh, around about Harvey and Katie Price I thought it was such a beautiful rendering because I would obviously from a uh, sort of a, like a humanist I suppose if you want a word perspective go ah oh, Katie Price working class woman Harvey mentally ill but like you know like but I obviously first and foremost enjoyed the joke uh, and secondly uh, your analysis of it was quite beautiful whenever I've been called upon to justify the my Andrew Sachs thing uh, I've always got angry again I've always right. got angry because I'm like it's not even real it's not even fucking real they weren't even offended it's not this it's because of the collision of the BBC this mainstream media because this you know like I've got re-engaged re-energised by it how do you feel about sort of like justifying your own joke scandal stuff I don't believe it I've never tried to really justify anything um I think sometimes like that thing you're describing there is just that fact that you understand at the centre of something that it's much more complex 
than what it's been boiled down to in a tabloid. You know, mm. and you're like, well, that routine starts a certain way and it goes a different place. And mm. on the night, it's different every night and blah, blah, blah. And why am I getting hoisted for this? So there's that side to it. But there's also the side where it's like, I often think, like, how many people have really got a sense of humour for this kind of thing? <laughs> So, like, if you look at, like, what we would call alternative comedy, we'd guess we'd see ourselves in that tradition, wouldn't we, if we watched probably all the same comics, like, when we were kids. Um, the big, what's the biggest alternative comedy show, like, in, in our, over the period of our careers? Maybe The Office or something. So The Office maybe got two and a half million or something, three million mm-hmm. people. Right, so there's maybe 60 million viewers in Britain. So you, charitably you're thinking, like, the biggest this can go is about 5% of the population is going to be into it. To get more than that, you've pretty much got to be, like, a man in a dress. You know? <laughs> I'll so, do it! So most people aren't into this. And a, a lot of the problem is, like, you're being asked to justify jokes, which is OK, but not to people who don't particularly like or even understand, like, what you're doing. You know, so that's a huge part of it. Is there, the, the the papers in particular, authored by relocation, they're taking something that you said to one audience, so that you said at nine o'clock on a Friday night in Newcastle, and showing it to people over their breakfast in their home counties, and going, well, "Is this acceptable?" Well, it's not for them, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that recontextualization is such a vital and neglected component. And what I've always found also annoying is the disingenuity of the papers when they do the repositioning of like that I don't think that they are ever like he said what oh man that's so, oh no come on we're gonna have to they are a, like op- a journalist of all people someone who literally goes through other people's fucking bins <laughs> is sitting there like horrified that someone's dressed up as the twin towers at Halloween or something you know oh my god <laughs> you know, they're the last people who feel any shock I had one that was like I did a joke it was years ago the guy who did the speaking clock died and I did something in a column or something that said, hopefully died after these small strokes. <laughs> and I got an email from the, a journalist at the Daily Telegraph who said, well, actually, Mr. whatever his name is, did die from a series of small strokes. And I'm about to phone his family. Oh, ask you him can. If, ask him if he finds your joke amusing. Is there anything you'd like to add? Can I, you're like, it's not my fucking joke then. It's your joke. Yeah. You're telling them that joke. They'd never have heard it. If someone projects a porn movie on the side of a primary school, the police don't arrest Ron Jeremy for it. <laughs> the author. Ron, what were you thinking? <laughs> There's children over there. Oh, no, I get off on it. Yeah, you're quite right. Yes, you see, that's a, it's brilliant the way that they've extricated themselves. The people's sort of shock impulse is so readily available that it bypasses the ability to go. Oh, hang on a minute. Why, why am I being even told this now? It's like because all of us on a personal level know that there's things that we would say to one another that now if I'm with my girlfriend's parents I'm not going to go I'll just be Frankie Boyle we had a real laugh about the mentally ill (laughs) so I recognise and also doesn't it like it's a language that has a sort of a like it's got codes in it that I know that I know my actual attitude is to mental illness I know what my actual attitude is to death and sadness and grief do we not permit ourselves a bit of fucking latitude and a bit of relief well there's comedic licence I guess this is what we're saying ultimately there's a comedic licence in the same way that there's artistic licence or poetic license. Mm. No one says to a poet, well, the fucking sun coming up in the morning isn't like a lion waking up. What the fuck are you talking about? It's not actually. It's <laughs> lions waking up. It's different. It happens to the Sarah Gay. It could happen at any time of day. No, good point. Let's screw that up. It's rubbish. But, you know, we, why, why don't we get the same license? 
because I suppose it's well. Let me work it out. Like, because I've often thought of like the, the the profanity being a sort of detonation of territory. Like, I enjoy doing comedy that is like disgusting and rude and raw and raucous. I suppose get off in it in some in various ways. But I think what it also does is it can sort of act as a kind of explosion that gives you access to different territories that people are a little bit shaken, and then you can sort of say something beautiful yeah, or sure. whatever and, uh, and but i think that like people like to keep the consciousness the common consciousness the public consciousness in existence on certain neurological pathways that exist on an individual level and on a collective and dialectic level also and that if you can untrammel those circuits those grids with explosive behaviors that that's dangerous sure i mean i think there's three things going on one is you level out what comedy can do because if you're not allowed to shock and you're not allowed to do something at the start because often those jokes they get most offended about are things you do to open up other subjects right then that levels out what you can do the other thing is they want to print the joke you know, they want to print mm. the joke. They're like a Victorian freak show, and I've got to look at the depravity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they want to show it. But he does have perfectly formed genitals and the elephant. I'll just give him a quick little wank. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> You're right. The cake and eat it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think the, the other thing is just a general thing they want to promote, which is the, the idea of uh, public opinion is synonymous with press opinion. You know, so the idea of the public were outraged by this. We looked on Twitter and we found some people outraged. You can literally find anything. If you want to prove anything from either side of an argument, just type it into Twitter. There's people who say, I hate yellow. I love yellow. <laughs> you know. um, so what they want to do what said about yellow, uh, is, is, is make their opinions synonymous with uh, the, public, uh, the public mind, brilliant. which is, you know... Yes, it's to, to validate and mandate their... I'm going to say it, Weltanschauung. Oh, there, there, I've said Weltanschauung. It's been said now. Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. So, um, don't you think uh, that there's a sort of... that When we're talking about change, social change, there's kind of an, uh, an obligation to reimagine in ways that are rather bold and may initially seem sort of a bit mental yeah. in their boldness. Totally. Yeah, that's what I think as well. I don't know quite how to do it because the problem is, is because people have been so beautifully schooled in, you know, in rejecting radicalism, associating it with the otherness, the exotic, the feminine, the mysterious, the sort of what do I want to say, the um, oriental, to reject it, to reject it. That now, whenever you say, don't, why don't we just sort of break down all superstructures and live in small, manageable communities like chimpanzees naturally would, because we can't handle more than 75 relationships and have just municipal infrastructure where required around transport and energy systems and not have power that exists for profit at all. And that we'll get our kicks not from consumerism, but by interfacing with the limitless beauty of the cosmos that we have access to for our consciousness vote for me well, <laughs> I think you kind of like there's that thing isn't there where you're seven stages away from the public there or where you imagine the general public are but you try and do that like when you're writing so I was trying to write a thing this week about the British Empire and that idea of some people say the British Empire is, you know was okay or was a mixed bag right? which is empirically untrue you know and, and, and for some reason it's not okay to be a creationist but it is okay to say well, maybe the empire was alright right? it was massive excess deaths and it's all empirically uh, provable and I wrote some joke that was something along the lines of um, there was a tribe somewhere who said 
uh, a stranger is a friend that you haven't met yet, and I can't imagine how quickly they died out. <laughs> um, and you, you know, so you, you you sort of approach it like that. How how do I gradually through five stages now when I'm writing? How do I gradually bring people to that idea, which is mine, which is to instinctively reject, you know, ideas of empire? Yes, that's right. Because it's difficult, isn't it, to unravel and discard centuries of indoctrination like uh i mean i myself went abroad we'll sort of like i remember the royal wedding was on when i was in la and i was like oh it's good this <laughs> i remember so sort of, i like, got swept up in it and, you know there were things where they sort of got this is a sort of a rather bizarre and you know, sort of possibly the wrong place to explore it but they showed how many like members of that congregation that day were dressed in literal Disney costumes. Have you ever seen that? Like they kept going, look, here's this person. That's a Disney costume. Like they found about loads of them. Like that Pippa Middleton, she's dressed like someone out of Beauty and the Beast. There's that one. And they're just like, hang on a minute, this is bizarre. There's a, a sort of an odd blending of the world of Disney and royal weddings. But regardless, my point was that that a little bit of pageantry, and I was right whooped up. And you know, I love a World Cup. I love a bit of you know tribalism. Well, they literally brought all that in as if they um, lost power, the royals, so they didn't used to have huge royal weddings. It's a fairly modern oh. trend. But also, they're going to need to like stop showing the cameras. They're going to need to stop turning the cameras around in the audience eventually, because it's so unrepresentative of Britain. It's like white than Nuremberg, Thatcher's funeral. <laughs> you know, you're just like, nobody needs to see those people. You're going to need to just focus on something else. Right, the revelation. You can no longer, I suppose now, with the ability to disseminate information, it's more and more difficult to control the truth. And while social media is still a corporate sphere and controlled by those kind of you know, interests, it's the, just the information itself starts to have an impact. I was at a Rolling like I went years ago, did a like piece where I interviewed Keith Richards. I got about 10 minutes with him, I had to write 5,000 words. I like, like sort of for a Rolling Stone gig. And like they, the stones themselves carefully manage the, the letting you see their audience because it's the elderly now, right. the Altamont no more. And I suppose all empires, myths, emblems, brands are held together by saying, no, 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 we are the populace. We found one person on Twitter who said that Thatcher's funeral was a lovely event. Yeah, yeah, man. Layers of layers of concealment. I need a week so badly now. I can sort of feel it sort of coming out amidst my organs. <laughs> so, so before I hemorrhage yet more urine, and some people would say that's all that the broadcast has ever been, a hemorrhaging of micturation by a man floundering, looking for something to cling to. Uh, thanks. Hey, no, thanks for having me, man. It's really fun. brilliant to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. There was a bit where it got really, really, uh, I zoned, like, you know, sort of not zoned out, glitched out, like where I feel the flexing of the glass of my understanding. I quite like that. Cool, man. I enjoyed that. What will we do? Just now that's the end of it and we go back to our normal lives. Like, this is it, isn't it? Just have to accept this was a little paddock of time that existed. I can't live with you now, is it? Oh, I've got children. You've got children. Oh, yeah. That's it. We just carry on with our lives. We're going to go have some ice cream. <laughs> it's going to be okay, Frankie. Thank you. Take care, man. Cheers. That was Russell Brand's Under the Skin. The show is sponsored by my Rebirth Tour. Go to russellbrand.com for information on tickets, but you may particularly want to go to Richmond on the 17th of July, Cambridge 18th of July, Worthing on the 25th of July. Brand.com. If you like the show, subscribe on whichever media or medium you receive these things on. And uh, give it five stars, please, just for the simply so that when I'm glancing at an average, I'll feel good about myself, which, believe me, is no easy task. 